We are in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to start this service out a little different than I did last in that <clears throat> share with you a little bit about what happened um, to me this weekend. Um, this weekend I was able to um, enjoy some rest with my wife. Rest is the imperative word. And she asked um, at the beginning of our weekend if uh, we could go for a hike. I'm like, okay, what's this going to mean? Because Cam's a go-getter. Um, and she asked if uh, I'd like to go for a hike um, up to Icicle Ridge. And um, I'm looking at it. I'm like, you know, I've learned not to make a promise until I really mean it. Don't say yes. I, and she told me how long it would take, and we even looked at what it would look like, and I'm like, okay, I'm in this. And going up, she, she would have done the hike quicker than me. I know, you're surprised, but um, thanks. Are you guys awake? All right, okay, cool, just making sure. Um, this is my second service. It's your first service, okay? Got to stay awake with me. Um, so I am breathing heavy. I'm gassed at the top, but I got it. And I've done enough hikes to know what must go up must come down. And there's a lot to go down. That's all I'm going to say. And I remember thinking, oh, my knees. I ha I, last hike I felt this. I was much younger. And it was a pretty audacious hike. And I'm like, oh, my knees. I'm going to get down one way or another. But this morning, talking with my son, um, <laughs> he didn't want to come forward and get communion. And because his hip was hurting. I'm like, oh, this is like God's putting it all together. I said, yeah, I get it, Judah, and it's okay that you're hurting. I'll, I'll walk with you. Let's go to the table together. Let's get this. Remember, as you feel this, remember the incredible suffering Jesus went through because of the joy of having us. I thought, man, <laughs> if I had to do, to do it myself, I probably would have ta taken a much simpler hike, but I did it because, because of my wife, right? She's worth it. And we're looking at something that on the surface might be discouraging, but remember, those who belong to Jesus, he doesn't give us his prophetic word to discourage us. To the contrary. Last week, we looked at distinguishing the difference between Christians and counterfeits. And we've talked about endurance. What did Paul say over and over to Timothy? Endure, endure, suffer hardship with me, suffer, suffer. We're like, okay, <laughs> my knees are hurting right now. <laughs> well, in a similar vein, as we looked at last week, distinguishing disciples, true followers versus those who don't, today we're going to take time to discern the days we live in. Jesus compared the culmination, the consummation of the end days like a woman in labor pains, Matthew 24, verse 1 through 8. And yes, we've had wars in the past. We've had famines. We've had, we're in a pandemic right now. And we've had plagues in the past, and there are plagues yet to come. But you mothers out here, you know, there's a big difference between your first hour of labor and the final moments leading up to birth. Okay? In the beginning of hike, my hike, I'm like, yeah, okay, I got this. I'm going to impress Cam. About two-thirds of the way up, I'm like, she's going to be impressed because I finished the hike. <laughs> but why do we go through things that are difficult, painful even, suffer? Suffering is involved. Why? Well, obvious answer, especially if you've been here the last couple of weeks, because there's joy. There is a, a reward that outweighs what we go through, the hard stuff. Some have asked, are we in the last days? I remember growing up in church, um, when I was a kid, the thought was, at least in the circles I was in, that um, discerning the end times only took the rare few minds who could really understand it, and it was kind of left up to like, well, no one really knows. I heard this adage, you know, it's up to your interpretation. Everybody's got a different view on it, which we saw last week's not true. Jesus says what he means, and he has one meaning. How it's applied, endless. 
And then you've got other folks these days, it seems more and more. Back in the day, it was like, oh, it's really hard to know where we're at. What does, what does all this prophecy about the future say? Hmm. Now, a lot of folks are just totally kicking it to the curb. It's irrelevant. It's obsolete. It has nothing to do with how to live life now, which I would argue couldn't be further from the truth. And so people, and I've had dear friends who love Jesus go kind of suspiciously, Jake, what, what makes us think that our times are any different in time, than times past? There have been wars and rumors of wars and all this stuff. How is now different than then? Again, I go back to what Jesus said. There is a radical difference in giving birth versus the first hour of labor versus the final moments, the final countdown. When you read, you watch, you hear the news lately, what do you feel and think? Now compare that, for those of you who have lived enough life, to go, what did I feel and think when I watched or heard the news 10 years ago, 15 years ago? I would submit to you, based on the model Jesus gave us in Matthew 24, what we're seeing today is an increase in intensity and frequency of all these things. So yeah, there were wars before, but what we're experiencing now on a global level has never happened. It's unprecedented. The things that are happening now are more intense. And you know, it's interesting. They're closer together. When you look at just the diseases that have broken out over the last few decades, more of them are popping up on a more frequent basis. I would suggest, especially because of God's word, that we are in the last days. Now, how do we know? We're going to look at that this morning. Let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. We'll read the whole section we're going to look at. Think about how does this make you feel? What thoughts do you get? Paul writes to Timothy, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses." always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus's and Jambres' folly was also. Paul starts this out saying, know this. When he says, but realize... It's know this. Don't be unaware. Don't be ignorant. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 talks about the end times, about the rapture, which more and more people are, you know, trying to diminish and discount. God doesn't want us to be unaware. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of the times we live in or the times to come. Otherwise, he wouldn't have given us this love letter of 66 books. We want to be discerning when it comes to the weather and forecast, right? I mean, think about it. This last weekend, we had some gnarly weather. A lot of you knew that it was coming to some degree. Brandy got a wake-up call from the weather. <laughs> Pretty crazy stuff that happened with wind and power outages. We all look at our weather apps because it's important that we know what the season is that we're living in. So we can, why? Be prepared, right? Do I need to put on shorts, sandals and a short sleeve? Or do I need to bundle up and get warm? How much more then should we be able and seek to discern the signs of the times? Matthew 16, verse 1. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, testing Jesus, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied, when it's evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times? 
Discernment is so important. A question I would ask you this morning is, how do we obtain discernment? Now, I would right out the gate say, the only way we can get real discernment is if we get it from the Lord. Just like faith is a gift, 1 Corinthians 12 talks about faith being a supernatural gift. It's not something we generate. Discernment is something we can practice, but it only comes by way of the Lord because discernment, true discernment, is a gift from God. It's his understanding that he gives us. Look at this next phrase. In the last days. That phrase, last days, is the Greek eschatos. It's all you end times enthusiasts know that's where we get the word for eschatology, the study of the end times. But it's not just end times. Like, you know, I've heard people say, Jesus could come back tomorrow. It could be another 10,000 years. That's not what the scriptures indicate and exhaust over and over. Eschatos, in the last days, means the uttermost end. Latter end. It's not near the end. It's the end. <laughs> I knew when the hike was really close to the end. My knees were like, ha, oh. um, You ladies who have had children, you know when the end is close. You know the difference between the beginning and the end. Amen? All right. And then he says here, will come. In the last days, difficult times will come. It's anistomy, and it means impending, imminent. You're not like, ladies, you're not going through these serious contractions back to back and going, it could be another four days. Mm-mm, mm-mm. You know that ain't true. <laughs> Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. You Bible students who were here when we, Rick took us through the revelation study, does anyone remember what the word soon means? Yeah. Or In taxi, right? We're in a taxi, except imagine a taxi that's like a Ferrari. It just keeps on increasing in speed. That'd be a cool taxi. The word soon means in taxi, and it's literally exponentially imminent. It's not like this. It's like this. Where are we on the graph? Let God's word discern for us what times we live in. Now remember, Paul writes this to Timothy nearing 2,000 years ago. Do you think we're closer or further away from the end? How could these words, though, build up, encourage, and most of all, comfort us? In these last days, difficult times will come. That word difficult there is kalepos, and it means strength reducing. It's a dangerously fierce season that drains you of strength. I know I'm speaking to people who can relate with that right there. And I don't know about you, but I've had more challenges to my strength and endurance in the last two years than any other time in my life. The warning, though, how does, if, if we know 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9, we're reading this, but if we know that God's word is inspired, 2 Timothy 3, 16, and we know that the testimony, the witness of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, Revelation 19, 10, and all of God's word witnesses to us, reveals to us Jesus, John 5, 39, then all of God's word is prophetic because it reveals Jesus to us. Well, what is the definition of prophecy? It is not simply foretelling. 1 Corinthians 14, 3 tells us that it encourages, exhorts, and comforts. We read about these difficult times and how it drains our strength, and we're like, not feeling real encouraged right now, Jake. How does this work? One there's a big distinction here, a real big difference. If what I read to you today, you're like, this is all gloom and doom. I don't know how this is good news. Remember, this is encouraging to those who know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, I would be the first one to say with you, this is really a f- fearful. This is scary. Yeah. But where's the comfort here? He's known these things ahead of time. He's telling us this now so we can be prepared for the weather. Like how I made that connection? Yeah. All right. Warning here. 
He is giving Timothy a warning. Know this. Be aware. Don't be ignorant of what is to come. The warning actually gives us comfort. And why? Because it equips us. It prepares us. It gives us confidence against future threats. I'll put it this way. We looked at this a couple weeks ago when Paul was telling Timothy, suffer hardship with me. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Equipped and experienced, I would say seasoned soldiers, don't go to battle discouraged. Now that doesn't mean that they're like, this ain't no thing. They know that there's gonna be hard times coming, but they're not discouraged, they don't despair, why? They're seasoned, they're experienced, they know what to look for, and they have confidence because of their training and what they've been equipped with. I think the perfect paradigm for this is a Marine, right? Those guys, everybody, they're trained, everyone in the Marines is trained at a basic level to be an infantryman. Everybody knows how to operate a rifle. Everyone goes through the crucible, which is really hard. You come out on the end of that and you feel like Superman, like no one can beat me, where's the fight, send me. I'll be, I'll be the tip of the spear. I'll go for it. Why? Because the confidence and the preparation and the equipping supersedes any threat. Yes, you're warned, you're drilled, you're instructed throughout. You're getting this training because of a battle that's coming. And some of you, depending on the battle, will die. However, guys, we're going to win this. Nobody trains like us. Nobody's ready like us. Nobody's like us because of our experience and our training. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you have that confidence in the training that Jesus has taken you through in your life? And if you're going, I don't know, that's okay. Hang with me through this, this morning's teaching. I watched a documentary on a Navy SEAL, well, the SEALs. And one of the things I'll never forget is he said, these SEALs that go into training, they pour, I mean, their heart, their blood, sweat, and tears into this. Many sacrifices to get to this. And then once they finally get to be a SEAL, then they still have training after that, and it's never over. But you don't become a SEAL because you want to work behind a desk. You become a SEAL because you want the action. You want to face the threat. You want to go out and meet the challenge. And the SEAL talked about how they would get a mission. They'd start preparing, gearing up, getting their head in the right headspace to get, get after it. And then he'd say, and then we get called off from it. And he said, imagine a pit bull that's been trained to be a fighter in the ring, and he's in a cage, and you shake that thing up, and then you walk away. They, they describe it as being spun up. They're not discouraged from their fight. They're like, let me at them. These guys, these SEALs, these Marines, the paradigm Paul gives as a soldier, they've been warned ahead of time, this is the threat, but we're training you now. We're disciplining you now, so when the threat comes, you will be able to overcome that threat. First Peter 4.12, Peter writes, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. We need to remember this. As believers in Jesus, God does not test us to fail us. He tests us to prove us. That's why they call the Marines at the end of their boot, they call it the crucible. It's refining. It's difficult. But when you come out on the other end, man, talk about the confidence you have. You feel like you can take on the world. <laughs> Except there's only one group of people who can say that unequivocally, not because of their own strength. The Lord doesn't test us to fail us. He tests us to refine us and to prove us. Jesus went into the wilderness in Matthew 4, verses and up there, Matthew 4, 1 through 11. He came face to face with the epitome of evil. And he came out on top. The father did not, the spirit literally led him into the wilderness for testing, but he didn't do that to challenge Jesus to see if he'd be faithful. He did it to prove this is the son of man. This is the son of God. Challenge accepted, threat defeated, moving on. And Jesus continued to face Satan. That's the other thing to remember. We see in scripture, Satan, it says, waited for a more opportune time. So it's not like, yeah, all right, I'm good. I beat that. 
He'll come back around again. We need to be aware, sober-minded. But the point here is the Lord doesn't want us to be surprised. He doesn't tell us to realize that in the last days difficult times will come so that we're discouraged, but so that we're warned, so that we can be equipped, so that we are prepared. We're ready. We're ready for anything that comes. Likewise, we don't warn our children of dangers to punish them, right? I, didn't, I don't punish Judah and Ezra about the dangers of crossing the street. I warn them. I, tent, I spend time to teach them. And then I'll, I've practiced it with them, how to cross the street correctly. We do this not to punish or condemn our kids. We do it to grow them in wisdom, to, to increase their confidence, to strengthen their, their preparedness for whatever comes in life. Proverbs 3.11 he writes, my son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. I go back to what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4, 12. Oftentimes, and I'll say this from my own experience, I go through something hard and I'm like, Lord, why this? You say you love me, but this is what I'm going through. I do not see the light at the end of the tunnel. But continue on here. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals. Proverbs 3 Verse 12, for whom the Lord loves, he reproves, he corrects, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for her profit is better than the profit of silver and her gain better than fine gold. You're not going to get this through any class in college or any education you take or any master class you do online or any amount of money. You can't get this anyway except for receiving the discipline of the Lord. But remember, he disciplines those he loves. When you're going through a hard time, and I think I'm speaking to a number of people who are going through a hard time right now, do not forget, you're not alone. He'll see you through this, and he's not bringing you through this to make you fail. He's doing it to resolve, to purify, to strengthen your faith in him. In the same way the Lord's warning is discipline, he disciplines those he loves. Hebrews 12, verse 5. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. That's interesting. How do you endure? You need discipline to do it. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by discipline, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." That's for me. Like, if nobody else here, that's for me. He makes a contrast. Those who aren't disciplined are illegitimate. When we're being disciplined, and remember, discipline doesn't come by going to the ice cream truck or getting a lollipop when you go to the bank. Man, I love that. Mom, Dad, can I go to the bank with you? Sucker, yeah. Discipline doesn't come through the easy, fun rewards. Discipline comes through the challenges, the hard times. And some challenges are harder than others. But what does it yield? One, if you're being disciplined, you know Jesus, you have a personal relationship with him, and you're going through a hard time, do not think for a second he's punishing you because you're worthless, because you failed him. That is a lie I have believed. And that's not the way I treat my son. That's not the way my dad treated me or my mom. And he's a way better father than I am. So if you're going through hard times, do not believe the lie or the deceiver that says you're going through this because you messed up and you're so worthless. That's not true. I never see Jesus talk like that in the Gospels, and I never see God discipline his children like that. Sometimes it's pretty severe, but why does he do it? Because he cares. I remember a friend of mine in the neighborhood in middle school, Alan, he was doing something, and so my brother and I did it with him, and my dad chastised us, gave us a talking to, and I'm like, but Dad, Alan's doing it. Parents, what do you say when, you're, when your kid's comparing them to another kid that just did the same thing? Well, I'm not their mom or dad. <laughs> I'm yours, and I'm talking to you because I love you. Discipline is actually a demonstration of God's love, and here's your first point. God's warning comforts us 
with confidence of preparedness. God's warning comforts us with confidence of preparedness. He is warning Timothy of these things to come. He's making him aware. Know this. Realize this, Timothy. Look at verse 2 with me. We're just going to look at the first part of verse 2. What comes in these difficult times? Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. I touched on this a little bit last week. The Lord gives us a detailed description of what to prepare against. That's the other thing. What, where do I find encouragement in this? This isn't going to hit me by surprise. When I see it, I go, yep, I know. God's talked talk to me about it. He's told me. I'm not taken by surprise. All of the things that flow out of lovers of self, lovers of money, everything else that we read here in the ensuing verses is a symptom. It's a byproduct of self-love and this love, this fascination with money. These impending times are marked by lovers of self, lovers of money. And in verse 4, it says at the end of verse 4, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Here, in lovers of self, in the Greek, it's philautos. It means selfish. Now, when we think about love yourself, we never think that's selfish. But that's exactly how the Bible defines it. Selfish. Lover of own self. And it's made up of two words. Philos, where we get the word phileo. Brotherly or friendly affection and love. And autos. Not cars, gentlemen, motorheads. Autos means backwards. It's what we would call narcissism, honestly. I want you... <laughs> you remember how Jesus says, you've heard it said yada, yada, yada. This is what your culture says, yada, yada, yada. But I say, folks, we have heard it said in this world, you gotta love yourself. But God says, love me and love others. I never see him teach loving the self. Does that mean then I don't take care of myself? No, not at all. We saw that last week. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as your own bodies. Oh, so he wants me to love my body. No, as Jesus Christ loved his body. Well, what did Jesus Christ do for the church? He sacrificed himself. Now, the things that I say don't make sense to the natural mind or to the people of this world. How does sacrificing myself for someone else love me? Take care, how does that take care of me? I'll get there in a minute. At the time that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippian church, he had no one around him except good old Timothy or good young Timothy, I should say. And he could trust that Timothy would check on the Philippian believers and love them sacrificially the way Paul would. Here in Philippians 2.19, he writes to the Christians in Philippi, but I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit, of like mind, who, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. And here's the kicker, verse 21 of Philippians 2. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. The word seek is tzateo, and it means to desire or worship. For they all desire after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. They all worship after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And here we see a contrast. The contrast is sac sacrificial love versus self-love. You cannot be sacrificially loving to yourself. Now you're like, well, yeah, when I go to the gym. Come on. <laughs> That's not what we're talking about here. Sacrificial Love is not self-love. It's literally a contradiction in terms. It's self-refuting. You can't love yourself by sacrificing yourself for yourself. Jesus sacrificed himself out of loving obedience to the Father and for everyone who would trust in his name. If it weren't for us, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. It's not like Jesus was wanting to die. Death isn't fun for anyone, but he did it because of his love for the Father and love for all of us. What does he say? The greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then what does Jesus teach his disciples 
starting roughly at John 13 all the way through John 17, he says, love one another as I have loved you. Well, how do I do that? Who's going to love me? I need love. How can I get love? And I think that's a great question, really and truly. I'm not being sarcastic. Because you can't give what you don't have. Hmm. So then the question is, have you received Jesus' love for yourself? That's the beauty of it. You and I can't generate love for ourselves. Take care of yourself, right? Please, take a shower. Take a shower, clip your nails, do all that. But we can't generate love in ourselves for ourselves. There's an old comedian, Jim Gaffigan. <laughs> he does this little tidbit on the gym, and it's all revolving around the self. And he's like, I go to the gym, and there are these mirrors. He's like, I don't want to look at myself when I work out. That's why I'm at the gym. But some people love it. I want to look at myself while I work on myself. Flip through my self magazine while I read about myself on how to improve myself. Maybe I'll go through Facebook and uh, read about things about myself, writing about myself, about how I feel about myself. Myself, myself, myself. Self, self, self. What do we call the picture when we hold up the phone and take a picture of ourselves? Selfie. And now they have these contraptions for like a decade now called selfie sticks. It's ridiculous. I mean, they work great. I'm not saying you shouldn't, but <laughs> the point here is you can't give what you don't have. If you're questioning what I'm saying, I'm quoting scripture. I'm just telling you what Jesus has told me from his pages. And he's not saying he doesn't want you to have love. He's saying you won't have love unless you receive my love. We have to just receive his love. How do I love God? With his love. It's like when I was growing up. I think I've told you this not too long ago. Growing up as a kid, didn't have money. My dad would take my brother and I out for Mother's Day. And he'd give us money to get her gifts. Or for Christmas, my brother and I would get money from my parents to get gifts for my parents. Everything that we were able to do for my parents was because of what my parents first gave us. That's the relationship with the Lord. If you can say that you truly have loved others with the love of Jesus, be encouraged. You are loved. You have the love of God. And he has poured himself out into you through his spirit. So you don't have to worry about yourself. Loving God, Deuteronomy 6.5. Loving others, Matthew 22.39. Cannot happen without first receiving God's love for ourselves. 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. So how do we guard against self-love? With sacrificial love. That's the next point. We guard against self-love with sacrificial love. And in the words of that soulful philosopher Ray Charles, his Christmas album, I love that album. It is better to give than to receive. But the only way we can give is if we receive. I would add that addendum. Now let's look at this next word here, lovers of money. Lovers of money, philargoros, which is discontentment and lustful desire for wealth. Luke 16, 13, Jesus was teaching, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For the Pharisees, no, I'm sorry, verse 14 of Luke 16. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. Hmm. Lovers of money are ambitious to make and accumulate wealth, either to spend it on pleasures or find pleasure in its worldly success and security. Put it this way. Actually, show of hands, who here has read or watched the movie The Hobbit? You ever read the book? or Okay. Remember in the second one, The Desolation of Smog, Tolkien's The Hobbit, he describes this love of money as dragon sickness. According to Fanlore, the sickness results in greedy, illogical, and even violent behavior. Bilbo Baggins had saved Thorin Oakenshield's life on more than one occasion. And at the end of the, the Hobbit, what does Thorin Shield come close to doing? Taking his own friend and throwing him over the ramparts to kill him. Because the 
the fascination with wealth had caused him to go crazy. And I find it interesting, but not coincidental, that Tolkien calls it dragon sickness. I think we've read about a dragon in the Bible. Have we not? So maybe in the garden he enticed them with uh, tasty fruit, with the promise of enlightenment that you might be like God. Many of us are enticed by the pleasures and the love of money. 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I'm not saying because Jesus doesn't teach that money is evil. It's not. Just like social media on its own is not evil. What do we do with it? What do we do with it? Some of Jesus' own disciples, followers, not apostles, but followers, Joseph of Arimathea, was a wealthy man, devoted to Jesus. What did he do with his wealth? Hebrews 13.5 warns us also to make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Is Jesus my treasure? Here's your next point. We guard against greed with contentment in Christ. And do you see the discernment here? How do we know we're in the last days? I mean, the things that we've read here have continued at an exponential rate. I can tell you, maybe some of you won't agree with me, but I've lived long enough now to see America and this world change in the 36 going on 37 years. There wasn't a love of self when I was nine versus now. Like it was, but not like it is now. And the Disney uh, slogans, you know, believe in your heart, follow your heart, follow your dreams, love yourself. Like it's just... It's so loud, it's everywhere. And anyone who would say that that's not what Jesus teaches, you start to get, you know, chastised for it or scoffed. I have, not here, but I've been scoffed for it. Philippians 4.11, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain, when accompanied by contentment. Verse 9, but those, who want to fall, but those who want to get rich seek the purpose of getting wealthy for the sake of being wealthy, fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. All right, let's look at the second half of verse 2 and we're going to read all the way through verse 5 now. These things that follow lovers of self and lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, Avoid such men as these. So the rest here follows the first two things we looked at. What's the next thing we see here? Boastful, arrogant, pride is another way we put it. Now, I've heard many people say, and I've said it, I'm proud of you. So let me make a distinction here. We have to remember, and really, we want God's word, his lexicon, to inform and transform the words we use. He's intentional with his words, and if we're children of God, we want to be intentional with them as well. And I want to raise my kids up to know and discern the difference between the subtleties of the world, because some things sound really good, versus the true doctrine of God. You know, it's interesting, when Jesus was baptized, in John chapter 3 we read, he comes up after being baptized, and when the Father speaks from heaven, does he say, this is my son in whom I'm proud of? In whom I'm well pleased. Now, I'm not trying to be semantical here. And I know many of you have said that to each other. So I'm not saying that you're sinning. But pride is something that's being boasted about, no pun intended, louder and louder and louder. Matter of fact, I think we have a month named after pride. Jesus never seems to esteem pride. 
We need to remember that who we are and how we view things needs to be filtered through his values according to his word. Revilers. What does the word revile mean? Well, I looked it up. In other words, it's defame. To defame, denigrate, and slander reputations, whether God's or people. Do we not see that left and right on social media? Constant reviling. Constantly. And then the next one, how could we miss this? Disobedient to parents. That is just like grown exponentially since I was a kid. But I remember growing up of a kid who lived uh, in the same apartment that we did, lived upstairs, and I could hear him cussing his mom out from within my own house. And as he got older, things got physical. But she could dish as well as she could take it. Um, what's interesting is it wasn't because he wasn't doted on. Matter of fact, I remember every week she paid him 20 bucks to take the trash out. This is in the mid-90s. Single mom working a job trying to take care of her family. I'm like, 20 bucks? That kid was filthy rich. And he had more toys than he knew what to do with. The kid had everything that he ever demanded. You'd think that he'd love his mom more. No. The Bible says that Parents, fathers, discipline those they love. Not punish. Let me make that clear. We're not talking about punishing. We're not talking about condemning. We're talking about disciplining. If we don't discipline our kids when they're young, they won't be equipped. They won't be competent. They won't be confident. You want to talk about self-confidence. They, they won't have confidence because they won't be prepared for the life that they grow up into. Disciplining our kids is so essential. It's so important. <laughs> a lot, there are a number of things that pop up in my teaching when I'm sharing with you guys that come from my dad and you don't know it, but it's a result of my dad disciplining my brother and I over and over and over. Not disciplining, okay? Not disciplining. Oftentimes it required us to stand at the foot of the bed because he was so sick he couldn't get out of bed and he would talk and he would talk, and he would talk, and you've heard me say this, you've heard me say this, but I will say it again, because a good teacher's a repeater, right, Les? I remember as a teen, he'd say, he could tell, he's picking up on my body language, you know what I'm going to say next? I go, yes. I could never say, uh-huh, okay, yes, yes, what am I going to say? And I said it back, he's like, that's exactly right. I'm like, what? Did he just affirm me? I thought he was correcting me. He goes, you're right. So how come you're not doing it? And I'm like, <laughs> I knew it, but it hadn't gotten in here well enough yet. Otherwise, I wouldn't be in the situation. He disciplined me. That's what, that's what drill instructors and drill sergeants do, good ones. They drill them over and over and over. I remember being in the Army, Fort Benning, and a, couple, a number of our guys in our company just being total knuckleheads. And he finally said, all right, that's it. And we're like, uh-oh, what's going to happen? He said, at ease, listen. A lot of you guys aren't listening to me. I've only got you for a little bit. But if you don't learn to listen to my commands and obey them the moment I tell them, you could kill yourself and all those around you. And then he gave us an example. There was a guy, they were in Baghdad, and this one private just would not listen. It wasn't because he was outright defiant. He just hadn't learned how to listen and follow orders. And the sergeant had told him not to do something. Long story short, he did it. And half of his body was covered in third-degree burns. And a bunch of the guys in his company got messed up from it just because he hadn't received the discipline. Discipline is so important. we got to discipline our kids, not punish them. There are consequences for the things our kids do, but we got to discipline them, and it's a regular basis. It's an ongoing thing. So it says here the love of pleasure at the end of verse 4. The love of pleasure... And this is another symptom of our last day society. Paul writes again to the church in Philippi, chapter 3, verse 18. For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even weeping. Imagine Paul crying while he writes this. His pages are wet in his letters as he writes this. That they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. And here's the last part who set their minds on earthly things. You've heard it said, if you're so heavenly minded, you'll be no earthly good. And we know that's not true. 
Paul just said it right here. We will be no earthly good unless our heads are in the clouds, unless our minds are fixed on the higher things, the true things. Paul tells Timothy that among the list are those who pretend to promote a gospel. Look at verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. They pretend holiness, but they contradict it constantly and therefore reject its power. For example, more and more denominations and just independent churches and many Christians more and more are supporting, they're encouraging, and they're affirming any form of love and marriage. Whatever, however you want to define marriage, you can do that. Whatever love is to you, that's, that's your truth. Despite how it contradicts God's design, God made it really clear. He gave us the paradigm. And he didn't tell Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit because I want you to be dumb and not enjoy life. He said, I don't want you to do this because I want you to be blessed. I'm not disciplining you. I'm not teaching you things. I'm not imparting things to you to put restrictions on your life, but actually it's for your freedom's sake. And of course, we know what happened. They didn't receive the instruction from their Heavenly Father, and now we're in the state we're in today. Hmm. This love that's promoted in today's world is so contrary to God's gospel. True love, he's given us this incredible design, a man and a woman in marriage. Monogamous, till death do us part, marriage. And what do we read in Ephesians 5? It represents, it foreshadows, it's a dim, very dim representation of the supernatural love God has towards us. When we defile this on earth, it ruins our ability to understand his love towards us, his relationship with us. They pretend to holiness but reject its power. It's a contrary gospel, folks. And here's the thing, if nothing is sinned, then why did Jesus die on the cross? It becomes meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. And Paul would say, if Jesus died and didn't resurrect, we are to be pitied most among men. But Paul says, but that's not the truth. We know that he is the living Lord. He did die for our sins and was resurrected on the third day. We got to stay true to the gospel. We don't get to take out a razor and cut out the parts we don't like. It's for our good that he disciplines us and corrects our thinking. We cannot make the mistake of making God in our image. He made us to be in his image. Paul says in Galatians 1, 9 verse through 10, that those who preach another gospel are accursed, accursed. And here at the end of verse 5, he says, avoid such men as these. Avoid them. Don't mix your circles with them. I'm not saying you, you can't ever talk to them, you know, shun, I can't look at you. But what do we see God constantly warn the people of Israel as they come into the land? Don't take part in the things with these other nations. Why? They're going to lead your heart astray. And they did because they wouldn't listen to the discipline of the Lord. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. And I would submit to all of us as parents, myself included, if we want our kids to grow up loving the church, involved in the church, loving his word, walking according to the, the truth, the doctrine of God, we need to make sure that what we value in our kids' lives actually aligns with that so-called desire in our heart. Are our kids involved in all these other things that are in the world that aren't necessarily bad, but are they pulling our kids' hearts away from the only thing that's really going to make them prepared for life? Food for thought. And in the name of being seeker-sensitive, we've abandoned the light of Christ. By the way, I'll just say this. You're all parents here, and you brought your kids, so... I'm not, I'm not going, oh, you don't do that. I'm just saying we need to make sure that our values align with his word and that our goal in life is him to be a part of his body. Everything else has to be filtered and prioritized under that. Anyway, a lot of churches have become seeker sensitive and so we've abandoned the light of Christ and as a result, we've lost our saltiness. We're flavorless. Matthew 5, 13, you're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? What do you do with salt when it doesn't have flavor? What do you do with the salt that you buy at Home Depot when the roads get icy? Chuck it out on the, on the ground, the road, to get trampled on. 
So many folks are being tricked, duped, deceived in believing you can be a, quote, gay Christian, lesbian Christian, Muslim Christian, fill-in-the-blank Christian. There's only one way to follow the Lord. It's through Jesus and what he teaches. Now, hang on a second. That sounds judgmental. Just remember this. What I just mentioned are a contradiction in terms, and this is why. This is why they don't mix. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying they won't. Such, and here it is, such were some of you. So Jesus didn't come looking at our sins, looking for an opportunity to condemn us. But he warned us of the ills of our sinful lifestyle. He said, come to me. Effeminate, side note really quick. What does that word effeminate mean? In Paul's day, the effeminate were men who dressed and acted in a female fashion. Sound familiar? We'd call that transgender, transgender or cross-dressing today. Now some argue, and you've heard me say this before. Some have argued, but I'm born this way, Jake. If I could change, I would, but I'm just born this way. This is who I am naturally. And I would say, okay, Jesus calls you to be born again, born again. He has the power to transform your life, your desires, your thoughts. If you'll surrender to him and his loving sacrifice that he made on the cross. Do I want to stay in this pattern of the world or do I want to be transformed into the image of his glory? And here's your next point. We guard against corruption by serving Christ's pleasure. How do I guard against self-love? You live to serve Christ's pleasure. 2 Timothy 3, 6. Read with me, would you? For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Here goes Paul again with his misogynistic ways. Before we get there, I'm going to paraphrase it just using different words, same meaning. Verse 6. In other words, those who creep into families and lead away idle women with the guilt of sin heaped on them, driven by a variety of forbidden longings. What do we long for? What we long for is what we'll be drawn to. And that is true across the board, men or women. The New Bible Commentary says it this way. This passage, verses 6 through 7, suggests that the women concerned here were so stricken in their consciences that they'd turn to anyone for help, although clearly not motivated towards the good. These women seem to have had a desire for knowledge, remember Eve, but were incapable of arriving at the truth. It may be supposed that they were seeking sensational experiences. Man, that is all over the place. Sensational speakers, teachers, the next experience. We just want, I'll believe it if I experience it. My experience defines what's true. Well, there are a lot of people who have some pretty crazy experiences that contradict what God says is true. Will I believe what he says is true? Or will I believe what I feel is true? What I think. Verse 7, the word knowledge here. He says, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's not, like last week, it's not gnosis, where Gnosticism came from. It's epigenosis, which sounds similar, but it's distinctly different. This knowledge they never come to is a recognition. The word means recognition, and it embodies full discernment. It's not knowledge, intellect, information. It's a recognition of what is true, accepting the truth. These women didn't recognize and embrace discernment. They sought experience. Jacob's son, Joseph, in Genesis 41, 15 through 40, is a great example of someone who walked with full discernment. Discernment is not a sixth sense, and it's not intuition. Discernment is a gift from God. Now, I will say this. I believe, generally speaking, women are more, generally speaking, spiritually sensitive, which is why Adam's sitting there, standing there like, well, it's wrong, but she's pretty and she won't be my friend anymore if I don't take the fruit. He knew what was right and he just totally was depraved. 
He desired to please his wife, his own, really, it wasn't to please her, to please her. If I do this, we'll be separated and that won't feel good to me. So sorry, God, but I'm going to join with her instead of being the godly guy he should have been. Now, here's the interesting thing about discernment. Joseph wasn't wise in his own eyes when he's asked by the Pharaoh, you say you have the interpretation. Joseph goes, well, I don't, but the God I know does. And he's told me. So let me tell you what he's telling you. Joseph had a fear of the Lord, which God gave him supernatural capacity to receive his wisdom. Proverbs 3, 7. Proverbs 9, 10 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge, the recognition and awareness of the Holy One is understanding. Discernment comes by God's word. Discernment isn't intuition or a sixth sense. Let's make that clear. Why do I say that? Because last Sunday, right after I was done teaching here, went home and I'm like, what's some more of this new thought philosophy that's kind of creeping in that seems subtle? There's a term out there, know it, be aware of it. It's called remote viewing. People who can be in a room by themselves with a paper, pen, or whatever, and if they think hard enough and focus hard enough, they can know what's happening somewhere else. Yeah, pretty creepy. It's what we call psychic, honestly. But just know that remote viewing, they try and dis disguise it as being really scientific. It's anything but. Science is tangible and it's measurable. This is a pseudoscience. It sounds scientific because of the way they want to address it, but it's totally demonic. How do these people know and see what's going on over there if they're not there? How do they get this higher knowledge? How are they enlightened with this? True enlightenment comes from recognizing the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. John 14, 6. Only full discernment comes in recognition of who God is. And when you open up your heart to him, he enlightens and opens your eyes to the reality, the real truth. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. Ladies, if you think we're chastising women, don't worry, us guys get a good dose of it ourselves. Here in verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres, literally Iannes and Iambres, not Yambres, not yeah, not hombres. It's not Spanish here. They're not Mexican. They're actually Egyptian. But anyway, he says, just as these two guys opposed Moses, so these men also, men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Ionis's and Iambre's folly was also. They were, these two men weren't tricked. These guys were just outright depraved, simply depraved. They were morally corrupt. Romans 1 verse 28 describes this kind of corruption in the soul. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. That's spiritual insanity. To do those things which are not proper, verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, it's not like they don't know the truth. That those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. These guys that are mentioned here in 2 Timothy saw the manifold power of God on display and they still rejected the truth, Jesus. They still rejected God. Exodus chapter 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron came to Pharaoh and thus they did just as the Lord had commanded them. Moses and Aaron they listen to the Lord. He tells them. They obey. These guys had real discernment and wisdom. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh also called for the wise men and the sorcerers, and they also, the magicians of Egypt, did the same with their secret arts. For each one threw down his staff, and they turned into serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. The demonic is real power. It's true. I don't deny it. But he is the true power. There is power, and then there's real power. There is so-called truth, and then there's the truth. We need to discern our days. We need to discern the spirits. There's no debate whether these sorcerers had wisdom and power. They did. But it was from a natural, earthly, and demonic source. James 3.15. Paul uses these enlightened Egyptian sorcerers as an example of those who love self. They love money. 
positions of power, prestige, and it's all about pleasuring themselves. But you know what? They don't last. Where is the comfort when Paul goes through this long list of all these hard things and says that it's going to increase? Where's the comfort? Who lasts? 1 John 5, verse 4, whatever's born of God overcomes the world, which is why I said earlier, I get it. You struggle with this. You identify as this, and it doesn't, it doesn't obey or align with God's word. So be born again. Why? Because those who are born again, born of God, overcome the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's your next point. I'm going to wrap it up here. God's word gives us grace to endure and overcome. It's clear we're in the last days. But whoever's born of God overcomes darkness. John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness didn't comprehend or overcome it. And if we're followers of Jesus, in essence, children of God, then we have his light in us. Matthew 5, 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand and gives, it, and gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do our children see that light? Do they taste the salty, good salt, <laughs> the saltiness of God's flavor in our lives? Being a parent myself of young kids, I can say personally, there have been moments, especially in the last year and a half, where I start to dwell on all the negativity and I go, God said it's going to get worse. Lord, have mercy. My kids are going to grow up in this world. And God goes, he reminds me, who loves your kids more, you or me? The Bible answer says you, but I know that's true. Jesus didn't make my son and daughter by accident at this time frame by accident. They were intentionally made for such a time as this. And he says, and he looks to Cam and I, he goes, are you guys going to walk in faith in me and demonstrate to your son and daughter what it looks like to walk with confidence in the Lord instead of discouragement, despair, frustration, fomenting and all the negativity of the world? Or are you going to let them see my light in you so that they know, here's the model, we're being disciplined, how to live life with confidence in Christ. Yeah, days are dark. That doesn't catch me by surprise. But I belong to Jesus. So whether I'm alive or I'm with him, I win either way. I got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Do I live with that kind of confidence in my own faith to represent, model, and invest in my kids' confidence to walk in this world as little, I, I picture them as like burning balls of phosphorus. Phosphorus, when it hits like a, a, an engine block, that thing burns through, nothing's gonna stop it. It might be in the darkest of night, but that light is so bright, the darkness has to leave its presence. That's the light that God has given us. So how do we overcome fear, dread, and sorrow in these last days? Revelation 12.10 tells us, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcome him because of the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their life even when faced with death. First, the gospel of God. The death, I'm sorry, the life, death, and burial and resurrection of Jesus. How did they overcome the accuser? How did they walk with power in the face, the epitome of absolute evil? Their lives were anchored in the gospel, which is point two here. Our witness of the gospel's power in our life. And thirdly, they didn't love their life even to the point of death. They didn't love themselves. They loved God, and God helped them. So then the question is, how can I have confidence if I'm going to die, Jake? Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Go read Revelation 21 through 22. You tell me what that looks like compared to the world you live in now. Everyone who has their hope fixed on Jesus' appearing will purify themselves and they won't be afraid of suffering. 
Because like Paul said, this is momentary light affliction. And I don't make light of it to sound super spiritual. But are we thoroughly convinced of this confidence that Christ gives us? And here's the last point. Worship team, you can come on up. Enduring difficulty with Jesus disciplines my discernment. You don't learn the difference between right and wrong in easy times. You practically, realistically, and you own, it becomes personal for you. You get discernment through discipline. Discerning the last days shouldn't discourage us. If anything, it should embolden us. When you see the finish line and it's getting closer, don't give up. Sprint your heart out to run through that line as fast as you can. That's the way Paul lived his life. Difficult days discipline me in my ability to discern spirits and to live determined in Jesus. That's a faith that's fortified and cannot be overcome no matter how dark this present darkness is. There is hope. We have joy. We are overcomers because Jesus has overcome this world. He said, in this life, you'll have trials and tribulations. John 16, 33. But be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome this world and you're with me. You're going to win. Walk in that confidence. Live in that peace. If you're thoroughly convinced of that and you walk with that attitude and people hear that kind of language come out of your mouth, people are going to go, how are you able to do this? Then you have a reason for the hope that you have. Then you can explain to them, well, because of Jesus. So because of Jesus, I'm going to end the teaching. <laughs> Let's pray. Bow your heads and close your eyes with me. If there's anyone here before I pray that has anything that they want to talk with the Lord about, and they'd love just to talk with someone and pray with someone about it, we're here up front. We'd love to pray with anyone who's interested and in, in wanting to pray about anything. It may not be directly re related to this teaching. But Jesus, I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts and give us true understanding. That in discerning the days we live in, we wouldn't be discouraged but we would become determined because we know the outcome. We know that we win in the end. We have all the confidence that this world could never hope to give us because you overcame it. Help us to live with that conviction because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that you would bless my brothers and sisters with peace, confidence, and determination, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen.